HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit wholefoodsmarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. Today, we are talking dairy farms of New England. We are joined on the line by the producer and director of a new film, Forgotten Farms. Forgotten Farms covers the story of New England dairy farmers, uh, the history, the current state of things, and what we can expect from the future. Um, Hopes, dreams, fears. Sarah Gardner, David Simmons, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So, David, you are the director of the film, but you do not have a background in agriculture. You're a director, uh, an actor. You've been involved in film and film production and plays. How did you get involved with the project? Well, you're calling from uh, my my old neck of the woods. I I grew up in uh, rural New England and um, went to New York in my youth and spent 27 years there as a sort of journeyman actor. I started a theater company there. I was a peripheral part of the uh, indie film renaissance of the late 80s and early 90s. And About nine years ago, I moved back to my hometown and uh, realized I had to figure out how to make a living, so I started shooting and editing things. And uh, that uh, I met Sarah Gardner, and, um, and uh, we came to this topic from slightly divergent places, but uh, 
I grew up around dairy farms, and, you know, these are pretty salt-of-the-earth, pretty rough characters, and if you hang around them a little bit, they put you to work pretty quickly, and uh, was fortunate enough to actually work on a dairy farm in, in high school. And uh, then, you know, cut to 28 years later, I come back, and they're almost all gone. You know, for instance, in our town, there were, I think, 24 dairy farms when I was a kid, and we, we were fortunate enough to have two left, but in its place is a very vibrant local food movement, which uh, we are big supporters of. Uh, we're part of it. We're members of the CSA. But we noticed this sort of marginalization of these dairy farmers, and we thought we, we should tell their story and look at the local food movement through their eyes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, Sarah, you are an educator. You teach planning and policy at Williams College. You're the associate director at the Center for Environmental Studies. Was dairy farms, dairy farming, agriculture, um, how did that come into your purview? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I, my area of specialty is land use, and I actually went to City University of New York, got my Ph.D. there. Um, and where I studied urban redevelopment and brownfield site redevelopment. Um, you know, but land use is land use, and when I moved up to Williamstown, it's quite rural, um, I turned my attention toward um, rural land use and agricultural land. Um, so um, I've been doing a lot of research on that since I've been up here in Williamstown for 17 years. Um, and, uh, my, you know, I teach um, land use planning at Williams. Um, and so I've been involved with very many agricultural projects around here. In the area, yeah. Well, Tell the story. Tell the story. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's hear it. Dave tells the story better. <laughs> tell it, but I like when she tells it. But she sent three students, groups of students out to do various surveys, and one was to survey farmers, and it was a pretty exhaustive survey. It wasn't easy. And the, the students went out, and they surveyed the Baby Greens guy, the CSA, and the Artisan Cheese Farm. And they did a great job, and they came back, and she said, great job, just curious, how come no one surveyed Galusha or Chennai, which are the two you know, conventional dairy farms in our area? And they looked at her kind of blankly and said, we had no idea they were there. And in a way, that's sort of the cornerstone of why we made the film. Yeah, well, the film is called Forgotten Farms. Um, you know, the dairy farming industry in many ways is uh, the the back, backbone uh, with regards to infrastructure, with regards to land use of farms uh, and farmland here in New York State, over in New England, um, but has been under a tremendous amount of pressure um, above and beyond, I think, most forms of agriculture. You know, uh, you guys note on your website that over the last um, 50 years, we've lost 10,000 con conventional dairy farms in the New England region. Is that right? That's about right. And so remaining, the count currently is at 2,000, um, and that equates to 1.2 million acres uh, in, in, in use for, like, active farming. Yeah. Well, they, they, they still produce about all the fluid milk that New England needs. Um, and they do preserve, you know, this working landscape that people 
from your area move here to enjoy. You know, the, it's sort of breathtaking when you drive up into New England, and they're, unbeknownst to a lot of newcomers, they're really responsible for why it looks the way it does. Well, why is it that New England um, has had such a robust um, community of dairy farmers? Is there something specific to the landscape that really lends itself to dairy farming? Is it the kind of populations who moved there and that was kind of the skill set that they brought with them? What did you guys learn about kind of why there was this bulwark of dairy farmers in the region? Well, in the old days, so in the, around 1900, say, um, pretty much every rural town and towns that are now suburban had several dairy farms because milk milk doesn't last very long. It needs to be produced near population centers or relatively near. Um, and, you know, around 1900 or late 1800s, milk became a very important protein source, especially for children, right? And so it was important to have farms, and there was a lot of demand for milk. So farms were ubiquitous. Um, and when the railroads came in, it was possible to get milk into population centers, like, you know, New York and Boston. From further away. From further away. Um, so New England and, and upstate New York really, you know, came to be dairy, major dairy-producing regions and then there are a lot of small rail lines going out to all these rural areas bringing milk into the cities. And it's... Also, New England is particularly suited to growing grass. Yeah. Uh, New England... Is, well, New York State has, has better soil, better for farming than a lot of New England. A lot of New England, you know, what they say up here is the best... You know, we're best at growing rocks. <laughs> That's our best crops. It's, it's hilly, it's rocky, the topography isn't great. Um, in much of New England, we're here in Berkshire County, um, which is quite rocky, and there's a lot of clay and limestone. Um, there, the Connecticut River Valley, of course, is wonderful for growing vegetables, but much of New England is better suited for growing grass, and well, grass is what makes milk. What makes milk? Yeah, I, we were just talking. Uh, one of the farmers, we, I, was in the, I was in his tractor cabin while he was haying, and... Uh, it's, you know, it's a pretty fascinating operation. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know what we're doing? We're taking this grass, we're putting it through a cow, and we're turning it into a protein that people can use. And I thought it was a wonderful, uh, succinct explanation of their mission in life. Yeah, well, I think, too, that is, like, one thing I want to kind of get um, out in front of here is th- really talking about just kind of the biology of milk production, you know, to make milk or cheese or ice cream or butter or the half and half I put in my coffee this morning, um, you need you need milk and and milk to make milk. Animals need to become pregnant, and then instead of that milk going towards their offspring, it goes to us. And I and I think that's an important thing to note because. You can't turn off a lactating cow, um, which is, I think, something really specific to dairy farmers and to the dairy farming way of life. It's, it is um, more than almost any other type of farming, a 365-day-a-year, always-on, never-off um, type of operation. They are um, big users of land, like you said, um, farmers often planting their own 
um, hay or corn or crops for silage to feed the animals. Um, so in addition to the, the land that the animals are grazing, the land that the barn is on, they're also planting on their own land or leasing land from other landowners in the area, major consumers of, um, you know, large-scale veterinary skills, um, tractor equipment. I think one of the things that's so fascinating to me about dairy farms is they do so much to create this real backbone of infrastructure in any agriculture region. And I'm wondering, Sarah, if maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of what's at risk with regards to that infrastructure as we see these numbers of farmers dwindling. How does a, a reduction in dairy farms impact other types of farm producers? Yeah, that's a good question. I just wanted to go back one one minute. Um, you mentioned that it's a 365-day-a-year um, proposition to be a dairy farmer. And so on the one hand, that's the source of much, you know, much of the hardship of dairy farming is that it is so constant and the cows are, are lactating and they need to be milked. But on the flip side of that, as we look at how much um, farms struggle financially in New England, um, one reason... Uh, one reason that dairy farming has survived so long is that it is a year-round operation, so it, they can support families. And, you know, they, um, whereas vegetable farms are only producing during the growing season, so economically they're quite, they have the potential to be quite sustainable because of that. That makes a lot of um, sense because their cash flow is coming in on a daily, weekly basis yeah. versus having, yeah. you know, a right. big harvest in the fall and whatever winter crops you're able to sell and then having a real kind of like tight time throughout the spring and whatnot. That, that's, a yeah. great, that's a great thing to point out for sure. And especially New England because we have a, quite a short growing season yes. here. So <laughs> we, getting longer, though. <laughs> so when you asked why, why there's so much dairy farming in New England, that's, that's another answer is that it's, it's a way that you can, you can, you know, support your family and be a farmer year-round, um, although many of them have other side jobs in, in the winter, obviously, to support the farm operation. Um, so back to the, the um, infrastructure question you asked, um, yeah, I mean, most, most of the farmland in New England and New York State is managed by dairy farmers. Um, and so most of the views that people appreciate are there because of dairy farmers. Um, and if we have any large animal vets left in, in the area, it's largely because they're working for dairy farmers and also horse farms. Um, and the feed suppliers um, are mostly there to, to support dairy. Um, and the tractor suppliers. So all of, all of those associated businesses um, are largely relying on dairy. And what happens as we lose farms and towns and areas, um, there's no longer enough business to support these associated, you know, services. And so there's sort of this critical point where, um, you know, if, you, if an area loses one more dairy farm, those services just won't be there anymore, and then a lot of the rest of the farms in the area end up folding. Um, here in our region, the closest large animal vet is about 50 minutes away now. Yeah. And so most farmers say we, we, almost, we never call unless it's a real emergency. They try to do their own veterinary care as much as they can. Yeah, so I mean, I think John like... John Deere pulled out of New England also a few years ago. 
all those things are are just are really so linked and i wonder um well, I want to get back to the film. You guys do such a wonderful job of profiling um, uh, so many different farmers. And I'm wondering when you kind of sat down to sketch out your your list of, you know, who you wanted to talk to and why. Um, was it obvious to you kind of going in? You're like, oh, this is our plan. These are the, the issues we want to cover. Or was it more of a learn as you go? Um, I guess I'm just curious, like, what were some of the known things and what were some of the surprises that came up as you tried to connect with different producers? Well, we were really fortunate because we had years of Sarah's research to, to kind of lean back on. Uh, but each of us approached it slightly different angle. I, I kind of latch on to emotional aspects, uh, you know, I, uh, of the whole story. And Sarah is really good at more policy uh, aspects of it. And that was a good combination. And, you know, we knew this, the farmers, the dairy farmers, I mean, right in my, literally in our backyard, there's uh, two, two conventional dairy farmers. And so we had those right around us, which was convenient for shooting B-roll and stuff like that. And then we had a too long of a list of farmers we wanted to meet with, and we did meet with maybe 20 different dairy farmers, and then there was the painful task of that was too many voices uh, to, to be effective in uh, winnowing it down. So we, we profiled three dairy farms, and we talked to uh, about five or six farm families, you know, members of and then, and then we mix in uh, policy experts um, uh, to talk with them and, and support these arguments. And then, and then we, we do then meet the new farmers uh, also and kind of look at them through the eyes of a dairy farmer, which, which I think, you know, there's been so much film and media and press about the local food movement. We, we just wanted to show examine them a little bit in a, in a new light. In a new light. Well, so what what are we getting wrong down here in, in Brooklyn when we're kind of thinking about being kind of active contributors to a robust kind of regional food economy? Um, what are, where, where are we misstepping? You know, when I go into the dairy section um, of my, literally of the bodega in my neighborhood, I've got, you know, seven or eight different choices of quote unquote dairy products, uh, milk made out of everything from, you know, soy nuts and coconut and quinoa to, you know, traditional fluid milk from a cow. I mean, is it as simple as just buying milk? Is it getting engaged on a policy level? Um, how do we be more well, robust think- supporters? A simple thing we can explore is just looking at the dairy case, forgetting, putting aside soy and almond milk and uh, these things. It's all, all the milk in the dairy case is safe and good for you. And so we're not telling people don't buy organic milk. We're not telling them don't buy the high-end boutique uh, dairy because that's wonderful product. But these guys, you know, uh, as one of them says in the film, you know, if you go to any gas station, any grocery store, that milk is coming from us. And if you take that away, who's going to fill that gap? And so they are, you know, not everyone has the luxury of, of buying uh, uh, raw milk from a boutique uh, farm. And 
do you know, do you know what I'm getting at? And, and there has been unwittingly. I don't think it was a mission, but there's a perception that a certain milk in the dairy case will kill you, and that we we would argue is not accurate. Yeah, well, I feel like people definitely, you know, passions come out with regards to milk. And I think because milk has a long history as being a thing that is really geared towards kids and, and you know, families and, and being kind of like healthy and giving your kids something. And, and those types of products always fall under a, a higher scrutiny. Um, I don't know, Sarah, from a, you know, kind of thinking about that, policy perspective, are there levers that we should be pushing in this space as well when we're thinking about um, really kind of the web of businesses that dairy farmers support, that whole kind of rural landscape and and economic infrastructure? Um. Sorry, I was listening to you. I was listening to what you're saying, but I missed your question. Oh well, I guess you know. I, I understand. I feel like oftentimes we are definitely encouraged to show our our vote, our support by making purchasing decisions. Yeah. Um, but I I also think you know being active in a political space um, and being informed around uh, policies as they impact farmers. It it feels so overwhelming. Uh, especially yeah. when you're talking about dairy. I mean, the you know, you talk about milk pricing, you talk about kind of who's getting what from where and how. And, you know, yeah. most people who are listening to the show are not going to go out and become policy experts. You know, right. they they want to do the right thing. They want to support stuff that makes sense. You know, where can we look for guidance and for leadership on these issues with regards to our kind of political voice, with regards to supporting policies that make sense for farmers, um, yeah. under the assumption that, like, you know what, I'm just not, I'm just not willing to put that much work in, frankly. Right. Like, I'm oh, not going to be up, like, reading white papers. Right. <laughs> and there's so much out there, and it's really complicated. And also, food is so trendy, and there's so much science and pseudoscience out there on the internet about food and nutrition and milk and milk substitutes that it's it's truly overwhelming and even someone with the best of intentions say trying to figure out what to feed their child it's really confusing um so i i get that um and and i would just say with regard to milk you know milk is a perfect protein it's the first food that all mammals drink you know um and it's a very efficient protein source. Um, people are concerned about CO2 emissions and methane emissions from cattle. Um, but in the whole scheme, you know, in the whole array of protein sources available to people, um, milk has a very low, you know, maybe almost the lowest carbon footprint of any. Um, and it's, on, it's very different from beef, which has a high carbon footprint, because cows keep on producing year after year. Um, it's not like it just lives to be, you know, one or two years old and then it becomes veal or beef. Um, so just from an environmental standpoint or a carbon standpoint, milk, milk is a really good choice. And if you compare the carbon footprint of milk to some of the milk substitutes, you'll find it is much, much lower. You know, there's almond milk and soy milk and... I think you mentioned milks from other seeds and nuts <laughs> yes, <laughs> that yes. I've never even heard of. But I'm guessing that the carbon footprint of those is much, much higher. And I think a lot of that has to do with 
you know, just these these odd trends, um, these 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 food trends that people latch onto because there's this you know supposed science behind them telling us that that milk is is bad um, or dangerous or that you know, a lot of people you know adults aren't designed to digest milk. Um, and that's true. Some adults can't, but most American adults can. Um, so anyway, there are purchasing choices that can be made to, to help the dairy industry, and, and I would say just buy regular milk. You know, organic milk or conventional milk, it's all, it's all really a healthy product. And milk, the quality of milk is based on the somatic cell count of the milk. Um, and that can be... Um, and so, you know, all milk that is for sale is completely safe. It's um, very rigorous testing, especially with conventional. Yeah. Um, and then, and so, the policy issues that are that are so daunting. Um, I think, at the bottom line, we're not going to have farming in New England or in the Northeast anymore if we lose all our farmland. I mean, that's sort of the basic um, foundation for food production, right? Right, right. Is farmland, and, you know, um, organizations like the American Farmland Trust are working really hard all the time in every state and at the federal level to protect farmland. And that's critically important. And also the farm bill, the federal farm bill, allocates funding that goes to each state to do permanent farmland protection. So it really makes sense to try to pay attention to the farm bill when that comes up and around to be rewritten every few years. So to pay attention specifically to farmland conservation vis-a-vis the farm bill. Right. Yeah, I would would definitely like echo that. I love the American Farmland Trust slogan. You know, it's like no farms, no food. It's, It's pretty simple. And I know here in New York, they definitely do... A, um, a policy action day where they usually charter buses up to up from from Brooklyn, from New York, up to Albany. It's a really fascinating opportunity to meet with your state's legislators, and I'm sure that they have similar programs in New England. Yeah. Um, that, that's a that's a really great point, actually. Like preserving the farmland is really a great starting point. It's something that we can flex muscle on um, pretty easily, yeah. no matter kind of where we're at. And a real it's opportunity def- to talk about that, like upstate downstate connection. Yeah, and that's the thing. There's so much. There's so many political differences between the city and upstate. Um, and but then again, you know. Most of the food, most of the local food and the milk that's going down to the city is being produced upstate. So there is this real common interest um, between, you know, urban dwellers and rural dwellers in, in the state. Um, when we lose a farm, you know, it's the typical dairy farm manages about 300 acres, three to 500 acres, and it's very quickly will turn into either woods or, or houses. And and it's very, very hard to get farmland back. Uh, so we sort of critical that we try to not lose any more dairy farms. Yeah. We will. We have to... We have to get behind. The time is now. Um, well, let's take, we are going to take just a quick um, station break. When we come back, David, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the personalities that you encountered and what it was like directing some of these dairy farmers. So hang tight. We're going <laughs> to get a quick word in from our sponsor and we'll be right back. 
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. All right, we are back. You are listening, of course, to The Farm Report. We are on the line with Sarah Gardner and David Simmons, the producer and director of a new film called Forgotten Farms, profiling a handful of New England dairy farmers. So, David, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the the farmers that you worked with and, and, and what it was like kind of coaxing out of some of the stories and getting people on camera, on film, uh, talking? There's a, well, there's a typical pattern, and the, you go to, to encounter these, these people, and they initial, initially do not want to talk to you. They won't, they won't make eye contact for a number of reasons. They're really busy. They've grown quite mistrustful of outsiders, and uh, uh, a quick story of uh, the guy who's in the film, actually, Hank Ard, is a professor at Williams, and he studies uh, uh, sort of the history of landscapes. And he tells a story that's not in the film about taking a class out to meet a dairy farmer, and the farmer said, meet me in such and such a field. And they went out there and waited for a little while, and he came up in a pickup truck, and they had about a five-minute back and forth, and one student raised their hand and said, I'm just wondering why you don't go organic, because then you could make a lot more money. And he turned around, got in the truck, and drove off. And this is, you know, uh, there. But uh, the pattern is once you once they trust you and realize that you're trying to tell their story honestly, it's very hard to get them to stop talking, <laughs> which is pretty delightful. And and we ended up making second and third trips back to many of these farms. And uh, there's one one guy in the film, his name Louis Escobar. Uh, He's from Rhode Island. He's one of about seven dairy farms left in Rhode Island. He farms about 80 acres, I think, and he is completely surrounded by suburbia. You know what I mean? He's just a little north of Newport. And uh, he is a showman and has come to know all of the uh, the neighbors and he said I you know I used to go to each new neighbor and introduce myself but now I don't have to because the other neighbors do it for me and he uh, you know we I don't know if you guys know about agrotainment you know he milks up uh, 120 cows twice a day every day 365 days a year but he's because of where he is he's uh, does a corn maze and a big fireworks show in the summer and, and He's done a masterful job of uh, with communication. And we met him. He had just had cataract surgery. So, and he wasn't supposed to be out at all, but he was out working. Literally, the, the night before, he'd had cataract surgery, and we are meeting him the next morning. His wife was very upset because he wasn't supposed to be in the barn or anywhere, and he wore, he's wearing sunglasses. And he's just a very smart guy. He has a tremendous uh, sense of humor. And sadly, after we shot the film, he, uh, they, they have something called the silage pit where they cook grass and, and corn. 
and he fell off. Uh, he was. They pack it down with their tractor, and it, as, as they take it away, it creates like a 15-foot ledge, and his tractor went off of that. Oh, man. He's 75 years old, and he already had a ton of nerve damage. He was on a blood thinner, and he's now completely paralyzed. And, uh, uh, and his, uh, we visited him and showed him the film in the rehab place in uh, Rhode Island, and his the nurses were saying, we've never seen anyone like him, his willingness to, like, they have to stop him from doing rehab. His determination to to just keep going. It, no one works harder than these people, and, and uh, there's so much we can learn from them. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I worked on a farm here uh, when I was a kid, and one day I had to do the opposite of what I normally do, and I ended up letting all the cows out onto the, the yard between the house and the barn and out onto the highway. <laughs> not a popular guy that day. And I'm not a part of this community, so you know what I mean? They always yeah. look down there at me anyway. And I freaked out, and I ran into the, the house and said, Fritz, I, let it, I messed up, I messed up, I let it, they're all out, they're all out. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't look at me, and he sort of took his time. He had a little more of his sandwich. And then he got up and walked past me without looking at me and walked through the, all these cows out in his yard and then went and sat on a hay rake. And I'm like waiting for, you know, what do we do? What do we do? He goes, oh, just sit down. <laughs> They'll go back by and by. <laughs> and his message was, you've done enough. Don't do anything. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I guess uh, we, we think it'd be a mighty powerful combination if you combined a couple of college kids you know, who, who are really, really uh, passionate about agriculture with some of these people. If you, if we, it's a, sort of my Pollyanna vision, but if you ever combine those forces, it would be a tremendously powerful sort, uh, force for agriculture in the Northeast. Well, one of the things you, you mentioned there was, Luis, uh, is 75. So I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, you know, the retirement age in the United States uh, is 65. Um, many people, you know, look to be in a retirement life space uh, right around that time. But that's not really the case for for dairy farmers. Uh, I, you know, I feel like there's definitely a tradition of working, you know, the retirement plan is essentially to die. Um, they love doing it, Aaron. Yeah. Much. They love doing it. And the thought of not doing it uh, it just would be heartbreaking for them. You know, another farmer in the film, uh, his wife explains, he, he has had hip surgery now, but before the surgery he was using two canes and then using a, you know, getting down to milk a cow and then using the cow's tail and uh, the canes to get himself back up. They'll, they'll do it till they literally cannot do it anymore. So. Well, what about, um, what are you guys seeing with regards to some of the other issues we're hearing? You know, we are hearing a lot about, um, you know, across the country, farmer, the, you know, age of farmers is getting older and older. There's not a new generation of farmers to take things up. Um, you know, you're, there's conversations around, you know, uh, women in farming, people of color in farming. How do some of those types of topics make their way uh, into the landscape of what you're seeing there in New England as it relates to dairy farming? Um, I just was going to say, um, talking about retirement, um, they're really hardworking and they, they love doing it, but it's extremely difficult to retire, <laughs> um, you know, because of the financial problems on these farms. What do you mean? 
I mean, it used, you know, a lot of them don't have any retirement account at all. A lot of these dairy farmers don't even take a paycheck. Um, so retiring, you know, oftentimes the only way to retire is to sell off some land or to sell the farm. And only a, a, you know, less than half of the farms in New England have the dairy farms have a succession plan based on, you know, research that's been done. So oftentimes they just, they, they hold out on retiring because they, they don't know what's next, you know. Um, but oftentimes when the, old, when the old farmer dies, then that's the end of the farm. And, well, so that lack of a retirement plan, that lack of a succession plan, like, what is that about? I mean, I, I don't think we can just say, like, oh, farmers are bad business people. Um, but but I, I, that is, like, something that comes, well, like, where, where, are the missteps, where are the missteps? Like, why is that the case? One of the, uh, one of the interviews that didn't make it into the film um, was with a retired dairy farmer, and he had several children in a beautiful 300 acres of dairy land. And he said, he said his goal was to sell the farm because he didn't want his children to become dairy farmers because he said, I didn't want to give them something that was broken. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you don't necessarily want to pass on a failing, you know, money-losing business to your child. You hope your child will get into something else. And a lot of children of dairy farmers do get into something related. You know, they might be selling feed or working for the farm service agency or become vets, you know, things like that, or heavy equipment operators, because you learn so many skills growing up on a dairy farm. But it's through no fault of their own that it's not a profitable business to be in. You know, they're so hamstrung by the federal milk pricing system that no matter how you work, how hard you work and how smart you are, and even if you have, you know, five children who are dedicated and work there, there's just certain obstacles that you cannot get over because you can't control the price you're getting. Okay. So I think I do want to clarify that a little bit. And I feel the phrase I often heard uh, dairy farmers say is, you know, we're price takers, not price makers, which, you know, is essentially reflected that you know, they are, like we said at the top of the show, you can't turn a cow off. So as the dairy markets, um, which are impacted by what's happening globally, you know, droughts in Australia, milk production in all different parts of the world influence um, the price that folks are going to get here. But those prices are, are set and they're not tied to production costs. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for folks on the ground? What that means is that, um, you know, the, the price is set federally, and it's based on several different inputs, but it isn't, it isn't really reflective of the production cost. It's not reflective of the cost of the inputs. You know, fuel, seeds, labor are some of the bigger costs. And then and a lot of these vary regionally. Like in New England, the price of land is more expensive and property taxes are quite high. So in New England, for example, it's one of the most expensive places in the U.S. to produce milk. Um, but the, the price isn't really at all reflecting their costs. And right now, the price is around $15 per 100 pounds of milk, and their costs are more are closer to $20. Um, so really, ideally, they should be making a little money. They should be making a little more than their costs. 
Right. But every month in the past 12 months, they have made less than their cost. So when we talk about the future of farming, it, it really largely comes down to the fact that it, that it is just not profitable. And there are young people interested in farming. You know, they're, they're, they're children of farmers who want to do it. But it's very hard to get into it without being able to afford to lose money. <laughs> We're downplaying a little bit the amount of young people who want to keep it going. Uh, I think we'd be surprised. Uh, we talk about this in the film a little bit. There are a lot of young people that want to keep it going, but they're conflicted, and they're often being discouraged by their, their farmer parents. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you don't want to sign up for a business where you're, you know, you're getting paid $15 on what takes $20 to produce. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to think about how those economics don't add up really yeah. fast. Um, well, what but the- if you've been doing it three, you know, 200 years, you're the same land, same family, it's very hard for them to be the ones to shut it down. Yeah, the far- to lose a farm in your generation. And, and I think that's one of the things where there has to be a little bit of a timeout moment where we step back and really think as a country, you know, what do we value? Where do we want to be driving resources? What do we want our landscapes and economies to look like and be composed of? And, you know, as consumers and as voters, I think that we have uh, a lot of opportunity to be involved in the shaping of that. And I think one of the other things we didn't touch on, but I think is important to mention here, is when we're, we're talking about scale and size in dairy farming. Um, dairy farming, like a lot of businesses, you can recognize certain efficiencies as, as you grow in size. Um, but I would guess, and, I, and I, I'm wondering if maybe one of you guys has a more precise number, that the average uh, herd size of dairy farms in New England is much different hundred cows yeah much different yeah than what you're going to see in colorado california and other dairy producing like large dairy producing regions yeah it's important to point out that you know sometimes uh the new england dairy farmers accused of being uh industrial farmers you know this is industrial farming and we 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 beg to differ we we see them as family farms uh mid-sized family farms and and uh you know, industrial farming to me is, you know, much larger than these farms, and the owners are not on the farm. They're in executive suites in Palo Alto. And and that's not our New England dairy farmer. Uh, that's they, not really um, 97% of dairy farms uh, in the U.S. are family farms, actually. Yeah, so I, I do think that, like, much like we were talking about uh, working with supporting, being engaged with American Farmland Trust is a very efficient way to impact uh, agriculture, I think, to being engaged in the dairy conversation. Definitely, it allows you to touch on so many different acts, you know, points that are important to our food system and food production and really just understanding the realities of that history and thinking carefully about the future that we want to create. Um, Unfortunately, we are just about out of time, but I guess I have uh, one final question for both of you. You know, after spending um, so much time doing these interviews, doing the the filming, the editing, the research, the promotion, are you um, walking away from the project feeling pessimistic, optimistic, optimistic, 
you know, how has your kind of perception of the, the opportunities here changed as a result of what you've learned? Well, the response to the film has made us feel very optimistic because we, we had no idea how it would be received by a film festival audience, for instance. And we, we were concerned we might alienate half the audience. And, and on the contrary, uh, it did what we hoped, and it prodded people to think really critically about their own food choices and, and uh, preconceived notions about what farming is. And, and that's been really, really encouraging. And really what we wanted was to start a conversation Dairy is it's a, a critical time right now, and and you know there's a lot of I don't know if you've been hearing lately, Aaron, about you know uh, the liberals abandoning the working class, and this uh, touches on some of those themes a little bit uh, also. You know I wanted to before we hop off mention our our website forgottenfarms.org, and there's a section there called Dig Deeper, and Sarah's posted a tremendous amount of information there. Uh, people. If people do want to stay up all night researching this stuff, there's a lot of information there. <laughs> like opportunities. Yeah, it's forgotten, org. org. Right. Okay, excellent. Sarah, how about you? Um, optimistic, pessimistic? I mean, you're obviously an educator and, and going in and shaping young minds every day. Um, what, are, what are your feelings coming out of the project? Yeah, well, first of all, you, um, I'm, I don't feel like I'm walking away from the project at all. I feel like I'm just almost walking into the project now um, because the film is done, and now it's gotten there's so much attention, and even you know, doing this interview with you, it's just really exciting, and this is the most important time, I think, to get the word out and have these conversations because that's exactly why I made the film, um, to do just that. And I'm so glad to be talking with you down there in Brooklyn because my main goal was to show people in the new food movement and those you know who love to go to local food restaurants and shop at farmers markets to try to get people to understand that there is there should be one voice for farms and farming that I don't I don't like this dichotomy between the new food movement and traditional agriculture I think that there's a lot of common ground and I think farming is in too much of a crisis right now to have divisiveness within the, within the movement. And my, my hope is just to, for everyone to come together to advocate for farm and farming in the Northeast. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like if you are um, out there listening and you have a um, connection to a film festival, if you have a space and are interested in hosting a screening, if you want to learn more about the film, obviously you can visit the website forgottenfarms.org, but what's the best way for folks to get in touch if they want to um, set up an opportunity to watch the movie? Right now, through the website, uh, you can contact us there, and also uh, we have a Facebook page, Forgotten Farms. Uh, if you look up Forgotten Farms on Facebook, you'll be posting a lot of uh, information there as well. Forgotten Farms film. And I think the first year it's going to be, you, you, we're going to be finding in, a, in a, quite a few uh, film festivals around the Northeast and, and hopefully around the country as well. And then we'll be wide open to groups and organizations in year two and also PBS affiliates. Uh, I think we'll be able to, I think it'll function well on some PBS affiliates. Nice, nice. Well, good luck. Uh, it was really exciting to get a chance to um, to view the film, to chat with you and I look forward to uh, following following it as it travels travels around. Sarah, David, thank you so much. 
Hey, Aaron, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. All right, guys. Well, that is a wrap. You have made it through another episode of the Farm Report. Um, of course, the Farm Report is produced by the Heritage Radio Network. We are a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Um, help keep HRN alive. Become a member today. If you go to heritageradionetwork.org and you click on that beating heart, um, throw us a couple of bucks. You can do it now. We've got some new uh, koozies in-house at the $60 member level. So definitely a fun way to keep your beverages cool this summer. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.